Oh my it was god! In his oh, this is gonna be fun. This is this is already chaos. You're hating this already. There's there's a sausage dog, a collie. Thing. <laughs> you can hear him. This is <laughs> right. <laughs> Knowing already that this is going to be a train wreck <laughs> of an episode, are you too ready? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you never know, it might be the best one yet. It's, it's so, lovely seeing the two of you together like that, all happy and expectant, but yeah. Is it going to take a dark turn very quick? Um, is this a grim story? There's there's elements that are grim, but hopefully you'll find that it ends on an uplifting note. I feel like me and Harry have the same voice. It's Do quite we? close. Can you tell the difference? Can you I tell can. the difference? I, we'll have to see if the audience can. <laughs> okay. 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 So, as people can tell, we're, I'm doing this with two of my brothers, um, because we're going to give it a whirl. Why not? Let's see how it goes. They can't look at each other without laughing. So, yeah. And there's also two dogs in the room. So any unexplained sounds, it's probably the dogs. Right. Keith. <laughs> Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story takes place in the Georgian era, and your three words, Bishop, Quaker, Best. Every, Every time, Monk. <laughs> did you did you do three words for you? Yeah, I did, and I made up a, a story in my head of them three words, even though you told me they're not that related or anything, and it was nothing. What I thought, a Bishop? It. It's Georgian era Bishop. Yeah, ba- Valley. Bishop, Bishop Quaker, Quaker, Valley. and Best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jack will often substitute his own three okay. words in. So, taking it from that, that it's not helped. Robert Hadron. <laughs> <laughs> That's normal. Robert Hay Drummond was what you might call the friendly face of the Church of England in the mid-1700s. He'd come from upper-class stock and had served as the royal chaplain to King George II during the Battle of Dettigen in 1743, right. which was um, a fight during the time the superpowers of Europe were trying to decide who should rule Austria. They called it the War the war of the Austrian Succession. Um, predictably, the English had joined the team that didn't include the French. Yes. Because that was yeah, the main thing. we got along thing. with the French sometimes. Very rarely. Right, so this wasn't one of those times. No, it, we got along with the French in the same way you respect your nearest rival. You know, it's we, we would regularly fight wars against each other. And for the longest time, the English had lots of holdings in what is now France. Brittany. Yeah, Brittany, uh, Aquitaine, um, Normandy, they were all at times... I mean, we held Calais for ages. It was a part of British territory. Um, But in this, we we were, you know, the Austrians were picking sides um, and we went for the side that the French weren't on so we could fight the French. Because it was indeed the French that George and his army faced at Dettingen. The battle is remembered as a British victory with some help from the Hanoverians and the Austrians because... If you're fighting in the war of the Austrian succession... Hanoverian, is that German? Uh, one of the German states. This is before... Yeah. So knowledgeable. 
I've done this podcast for years. Mm. Yeah. Just before me. before oh. they were joined yeah. together under the Prussian Otto von Bismarck. Bismarcky Mark. Who yeah. you, you learnt about during our um, cat-based episode. Um, yeah, there were lots of different German states, essentially. Um, but in reality, even though it goes down in the history books as a British victory, it was a very close-run thing, with more French soldiers dying as a result of an accidental bridge collapse than due to the English soldiers they were fighting. <laughs> was that them erecting a bridge and then testing it in lockstep and it collapsing? Or... No. That... Oh, it hadn't been tested by soldiers so when they went over it. Well, it it was just a freak thing. The French were repositioning their troops and that involved crossing uh, a river on a bridge and the bridge collapsed. And So the French didn't make the bridge? No, no, no. Was this a wasn't... Was a... there. Yeah. Right, okay. They'd, they'd seen a tactical advantage that could be gained from crossing the bridge and it probably would have been a tactical advantage only the bridge collapsed and a load of French soldiers died and the English went, well, it's a technicality but it's still a win. <laughs> Right. England, 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 <laughs> like that. I have twelve more bridge questions. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> what was it made of? What colour was it? Stone grey. <laughs> it turns out I only had two bridge questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the battle though. What's a bridge? <laughs> despite it being a bit of a shambles, is remembered and has gone down in history as it marks the last time that a British monarch has led soldiers into battle. That was the last time a British monarch was with his soldiers in the field. In the 1700s? Yeah. Although I have to add the caveat to this point, because, you know, if Queen Elizabeth herself decides she wants to get out in the field with some British soldiers, that resets the clock. I don't are, are think we she's going to. As, the, as they are the king or queen? Yeah, as so the general It's, it's of the not army. like we can go, like, Harry's been at war, hasn't he? Yeah. Not you, Monk. No. Yeah. Um, Haven't I? No, no. Oh, um, so, oh no, no, not yeah. Harry. William's been. Yeah, no, no. It's leading as a general right, right. on the field of battle. This was the last time a reigning monarch did that. Right. Yeah. Uh, with an act of God featuring so heavily in the outcome, it's not surprising that Robert Hay, who was acting as um, the royal mm-hmm. chaplain at the time, uh, was rewarded for whatever strings he pulled. Because he'd had a word with the big man upstairs and a bridge had collapsed, right. turning what could have been a French victory quite quickly into a French defeat. And he was given the plum position as the Bishop of York. What does that entail? It entails sort of presiding over York and Yorkshire the and bishop. all of the monies therein that the church owns. You're the owned. bishop, you're the... You're the, you're the you're head the, honcho of that area. Guy. The... You've seen York Minster Cathedral. It's big. Yeah. It's impressive. Climb them stairs. Yeah, he had that. Have that was been? his. Yeah, yeah. He would have looked at that and gone, I own that. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm looking after that for a while. It wasn't his first position, though, that he'd been given after the war. Firstly, he'd been made Bishop of St Asaph in Wales. And while he said he enjoyed the job, he did complain that the locals continued to insist on speaking Welsh, which he wasn't a fan of. Did he not learn? No, he didn't learn. He he actually said that it would be better if the Welsh people just learnt to speak English. And they did. <laughs> <laughs> and they ignored him. Yeah. He left on good terms. They thought he was a good bishop, but... The, the language barrier and the stubbornness of both sides, they kind of went, mm, okay, yeah, this just didn't work. And so he got given the position at York instead. But whether in Wales or York, Robert Drummond was known as a kind and generous man. The king himself said he was indeed a man to make a friend of, which is high praise indeed. And his son remembered fondly, 
Wherever he lived, hospitality pre- uh, prevailed. No. Wherever he lived, hospitality presided. Wherever he was present, elegance, festivity and good humour were sure to be found. Which is a polite way of saying he liked to drink, he liked to party, and he liked to drag everyone along with him into that. So he was always having lavish parties thrown. He was a, yeah. Was he, he handsome? You know, like in a kissable lip kind of way. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was he was a slightly larger gentleman. Yeah, but any, anyone wealthy was. Yeah, yeah, no, it was just, it was the outward sign of his wealth. thing to be. Yeah, plump. Mm. But because of his good nature, it came as no surprise that as he entered his 60s, Robert Hay Drummond decided he needed to complete a great act of philanthropy for the people of Yorkshire that he was presiding over. Something positive that could continue long after he'd shuffled off this mortal coil. So he encouraged the local nobles to support him in establishing an asylum for those afflicted with mental illnesses. Or poor lunatics, to use his own phrase. Oh, we're not, are we going bedlam again? Are we doing a bedlam revisited? That's where it it takes well, we're not we're not going to Bedlam because this is in Yorkshire. He's going to end up being thrown in there. That's how it's. No, he's going to embezzle money. <laughs> so what's going to happen? So he's going to set it up, and then he's going to start stripping the money out of the place, and all the people are there to be helped. Am I close? Well, let's find out. Okay, because he's already got. A, he already likes to party and drink. Mm. That can't last um, forever. No, he's got to fuel oh, that with yeah. something. Aye. Well, the rapidly industrialising North. It was witnessing a breakdown in the ad hoc community structures that traditionally cared for people who were mentally ill. And instead, these people were being sent to the workhouses, uh, where some were just chained up for years at a time because they didn't know what to do with them. Uh, there was also an example... Actually, just chained, chained without moving Chained for to years. walls, yes. Do you feed... Well, you've got to feed them. Yeah, you do feed them. Um, there was also an example where a man was paid to keep a lunatic in his outhouse, as this was cheaper than paying for admission to a private madhouse. So you could either pay for your relative to be put into a private madhouse, or you could pay John down the road to keep him <laughs> in his privy, and this happened. Story. Do you think that's the real story of Harry Potter? It's the real story behind it all is that he's a lunatic who's locked in a cupboard. And this is, and this oh, is his fantasy world. Yeah. I'm pretty sure and that's The a... wizarding world is just his like mental escape out of it. You won't be able to watch it the same again. I, I don't watch it that often anyway. Well, whether Sorry. this is whether you know <laughs> Man in the Outhouse <laughs> developed a sort of Harry Potter delusion or not, <laughs> there's hope for him now because yeah. the York Asylum was going to be built, and it would be the fifth public asylum in the country after Bedlam, yeah, St Luke's, yeah. which was the one across the road from Bedlam, oh the good one, yeah, yeah, in London, the Manchester Asylum, which was built in 1766, and another St Luke's but this time in Newcastle, which was built in 1767. And Robert Hay, he envisaged his new asylum providing humane and progressive care to 54 people. So it's going to be a a sort of, you know, a bijou little sort of um, artisanal kind of asylum. They've got a few patients. They're going to have like 10 staff. Uh, Seven keepers, so wardens, and a pocket three and a physician. So nine permanent members of staff. For 54 people, yeah. It was, was the plan. Is that bad? You're in the medical field. I'd want more. Yeah, but for the standards of the but time. It's, it's the, just being chained in a room. You, no, no. You, the, you're cool. You that, wasn't, that wasn't the plan here. It was humane and progressive right, treatment. Okay. Then, yeah, you'd want um, more. The idea received support from such illustrious people as the former 
and at the time future Prime Minister, the Marquis of Rockingham, mm. who donated 100 guineas to the cause. Uh, he, he was Prime Minister again um, a couple of years after he donated to this, but he lasted less than a year before he died of a massive heart attack. Oh. So he technically was uh, Prime Minister twice, but the second one doesn't really count because he barely, you know, got into number 10 before... <laughs> Was it from stress or just being a bit I, fat? I just couldn't believe I, it. Yeah. <laughs> he was as shocked as anyone he'd been voted in. Again? <laughs> oh, me? Twice? <laughs> Doesn't that make me special? Uh, eventually, over 70... Uh, 70. Over £7,500 was raised, which is about one and a quarter million in today money. So it's not a bad start. Mm. Wait, uh, to build a whole asylum and staff it? Yeah. That's like a year's budget, isn't it? Well, it's enough to get it off the ground, let's put it that way. But unfortunately, even though he sourced the funding, got the land sorted, building had commenced, and they got a famous architect to do it as well. One of the buildings that this architect had done before, it was in the Downton Abbey movie. So, you know, it's good. (laughs) Grade one listed. Um, But unfortunately, the amiable and socially minded bishop, he didn't live long enough to see the asylum completed and died. The massive heart attack. Uh, in 1776 I think it was a stroke actually uh, the year before it opened but he would have been happy to know that it had been left in the capable hands of Dr Hunter who had helped to define the progressive mission statement for humane care of the mentally unwell so Dr Hunter was the person that um, the bishop had sort of liaised with to decide on how this should be set up how many people should be there what kind of treatments were going to be offered can you trust someone called Dr Hunter can you trust someone called Dr. Hunter? Yeah, I don't think he's going to be a kind guy. No. Yeah. Well, don't worry, because to ensure that the institution lived up to the high standards that Robert Hay Drummond had envisaged, there will be daily inspections made by independent auditors to quality assure, and there be oversight from a, a, a panel of governors. So someone what outside say, will be coming though, in daily. Hmm. What they do. You don't think it's going to happen, no. more. Corruption. It's Dr. Hunter. Well, Someone, someone's going to go bad. His excuse... Here we go, here we go, straight away. <laughs> ...was that finding people willing to complete daily audits was proving quite difficult. So he changed it to monthly audits quite quickly. Uh, then um, it became a case of whenever they got round to organising an audit, which wasn't very often. But not to worry. Was he still passing with the... With the aud- were they still passing the audits yeah, yeah, at this yeah. point? Yeah, they were still passing they were the audits. They were very ad hoc. By a year or something. Yeah, and you, you don't need to worry because a decade later in 1788, a government inspection led by... And this is a name, okay? I love this. You ready, Harry? Sir George Wonciferous Paul. Wonciferous. George Wonciferous Paul, John and Ringo, I should say. Um, concluded Ooh. that the asylum was excellently managed with the utmost attention paid to decency and cleanliness. Okay. Yeah, that's quite clear. They're, they're being decent, they're being clean, and it's well run. Right, so you're, at the moment you're trying to convince us. <clears throat> you're, you're, so your writing is leading us one way to think this. But just get to the twist, because I'm not falling for it. <laughs> <laughs> Why would there need to be a twist? Okay, continue. Yeah. It was with this positive review in mind that the Quaker community of Leeds agreed that one of their own... Quaker. A 40... Yes, yes. It's one of the words. Yeah. See, Harry remembers. What was the first one? Bridges. No, it wasn't. 
it was bishop bishop it mm. with a b and the yeah. last one is don't tell me rope no, no that was no should we just carry on? carry on yeah so <laughs> it was with this positive review that the quaker community of leeds agreed that one of their own a 42 year old widower called hannah mills should be sent to the york asylum to recover from a bout of melancholy which today is probably likely to be clinical depression she was admitted on the 15th of March, 1790. Her family, not being local to York, um, asked the local Quakers to visit with Hannah to check regularly on her progress. But for some reason, when a group of local Quakers went to see Hannah, the keepers of the asylum refused to allow them entry. Sure that it was just a misunderstanding or some administrative issue that could be straightened out, the local Quakers kept trying to get a request for a visit authorised. They, prove, uh, they provided evidence that the family of Hannah had given them express permission to visit her and that they were doing so in support of their fellow Quakers and not as an excuse to gawp at the lunatics like we saw in Bedlam oh, for could, all that time. You, pay you money could pay money to, to go. go and look at lunatics. So the, the Quakers are, going, the Quakers are uh, at this point thinking, no, 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 I, I understand why you're making it difficult for people to come and visit if they're not immediate family because you're just trying to protect the dignity of these people so we're willing to follow whatever administrative procedures you need to to quali- to rest assured that we're not just here to laugh at, at people right. um but still it all, being denied yeah and it all right. became academic pretty quickly actually as hannah's stay in the asylum only ended up being 45 days she died on april 29th 1890 and the physician dr hunter he wasn't too keen to give an exact cause consumption no it'd be um yeah on the death certificate cause of death stopped breathing right what are you feeling monk i'm feeling like a serial killer it's dr hunter i know Mm. he's out for flesh was was electroshock therapy a thing at this point uh no they weren't using ect this is yeah this is way before is this at the time where we have electric not no. no I mean right. I think some people were messing about with electricity okay, but, but not the point we're nowhere near even electrification now. Right. I feel like he's harvesting body parts oh. and making like a, a, a collage <laughs> like a big <laughs> painting collage thing of, of body parts to what and... end mm. well, just, just, just to just, have just cause just, just for well I mean the, the Quaker community they didn't <laughs> They didn't go quite that far in their... uh... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It just says Dr. Hunter made out of limbs. (laughs) (laughs) Ten foot across his wall. (laughs) Well, so so that didn't happen. I'm I'm sorry to... Well, I'm actually quite pleased to say that he wasn't um, doing some some kind of weird, morbid collage out of these people. But it's going to be weird, whatever it is. Well, the Quaker community suspected that um, the reason that he didn't want to give a cause of death is because she'd been mistreated and abused since she got to the asylum. And he didn't want that getting out because, you know, he had quite a cushy situation. Uh, he was head physician of a major asylum and he was getting paid quite handsomely for it. Uh, the Quaker community, they didn't accept him just saying, oh, died of death. Yeah. Sorry. They rallied. Uh, yeah, and they enlisted the help of a Dr. Burr to try and find out more about the practices taking place at York Asylum. Because, like, if we're, if we're not allowed in, we'll get a doctor, a fellow professional, to, to request to go in and have a look at the practices so, so that we can rest assured that it wasn't anything untoward that happened. Was it that, or was it an actual bear? 
No, because it's spelled B U R G H. That's how you know. <laughs> they send in enforcements. It's Doctor Bear. Well, <laughs> they send in the bear. The only way to resort, take out a hunter is yeah. a bear. Last resorts, Doctor Bear. <laughs> well, yeah. um, Doctor Bear, he went up uh, to York Asylum. Oh, sorry, hunting a bear. Sorry, Jim, yeah. I missed that. Uh, to, to ask the governors if he was allowed to have a little inspection. Um, and the governors stonewalled him. Uh, they complained that, you know, he had no authority to be asking these things, that they were he was impugning the honour of their physician who had worked there for over a decade and, you know, had been doing lots of good work for the people of York. Uh, and it got to the point where they wouldn't even give him a copy, a paper copy of the rules that they expected the keepers to follow when working with patients. So it was a conversation along the lines of, no, we have a strict guidelines that our, our workers must follow. Can I see the guidelines? No, <laughs> you just need to know that the guidelines are there. Yeah. And trust us, they're the best guidelines. So, you know, a bit suspicious. Uh, to be fair to Dr. Hunter, though, he was busy with lots of other things, as well as being the head physician. He was busy writing one of eight books that he published while he was head physician of the York Asylum. Is that part of his job description? Well, you mean writing medical books based upon his um, right. his expertise? Well, no, because none of these books were actually uh, about the treatment of mental illness. They were all concerned with his true passion, which was agriculture. <laughs> always something else. Isn't it? Well, so why why it, is that one of his list of j- jobs? He's very busy. With... No, it's just what he was doing with his time. I'm not saying it was his job. It was it was his hobby essentially. And you know, it's fine for a man to have hobbies, but. It's questionable how much treatment Dr. Hunter was providing when he had time to write eight books about agriculture, edit several agriculture journals. He found time to run the York Agricultural Society, which he founded, and become a member of the Royal Society of Agriculture. So he was he was kind of all in on this this agriculture part of his life and only really interested in the paycheck that came with York Asylum. I say the paycheck... Um, he was also writing another book, and this was the dummy set of accounts for York Asylum. So there were two sets of accounts. What did I tell you? Bezzling money. Mm. And yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> 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 it takes quite a bit of time and effort to produce a dummy set of accounts, as you know, you can imagine. Um, it would later come out that Dr. Hunter was taking a good proportion of the money that should have been used to feed and clothe the patients in the asylum. This embezzlement was made worse by the fact that the prices of basic goods were rising significantly as a result of the Napoleonic Wars. This meant that during the the 1790s, even not the 1970s, (laughs) during the 1790s, patients were having about half the money spent on their care as they had been when the asylum first opened a couple of decades before. So real terms, the amount that was being spent per patient had halved. Dr. Hunter also realised that one of the ways he could increase the amount of money he could embezzle was by taking more patients on. And by the time of... But Joe, the hospital's only built to support 57 people. Uh, 54. 54 well, by the time 1790 rolled around, he'd already increased the amount of patients from the original 54 to well over 100. So oh, he'd... he, You know, he's, <laughs> he's doubled. Which then, of course, you know, you have half the money to spend on each patient, but you've got double the patients. So you've actually got a quarter of the money that you originally had to spend per patient on the patients that you're supporting. And he also found a way of 
cutting costs by building half- his own bunk beds. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was multi- halving the staff. <laughs> no, no, he just didn't increase the amount of staff. Oh. So you had the same amount of staff for a um, hundred odd people as you had for fifty-four. So it wasn't decreasing the staff, but it definitely wasn't getting so you've bigger. You've got like a twelve patients per one staff member who's seven. Yeah. Something like that. It's gone it's gone up significantly the amount of Could patients you cope per with person. That? No. 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 <laughs> and these are you know, these these are people who are suffering. I don't know, from I don't work. One to one I don't work in <laughs> these are people who are mentally unwell and none of the treatments that are being used actually at the time treated mental illness. Just probably Do we know any of the treatments off. that we're using? <laughs> Uh, they were still on the bedlam regime so it was lots of um purging so making people poo making people vomit you know bloodletting all of those things were still there Uh. and if they were violent in any way restraint that was pretty much the treatment in the hopes that eventually they'd get over it that's fine it's grim isn't it but the quakers of york they didn't know any of this yet they only suspected when when joe sorry to interrupt as you're giving you get more and more energetic as horrible stuff starts yeah, happening. Yeah. I do the same as you, just like sort of leaning on the table and groaning. Yeah. And you're like... <laughs> and then just, they raped just... all 30... What's up? You're leaning closer and closer to the microphone and it's just popping and popping and popping. Okay, sorry. Because <laughs> you're getting excited. You say you're not, but you love the gore. <laughs> but like I say, <clears throat> at this point, the Quakers of York, they didn't know any of this. They suspected there was mismanagement and abuse, but they hadn't seen the fact that he had two books accounts they didn't right. know that you know they had double the amount of patients all of this was th- probably the reason they didn't want them going in and having a look around was he keeping it so he's got the dummy record is he keeping the actual record yeah, yeah. for himself he, he keeps the actual records so that he knows what's going on yeah for himself yeah for himself and then the dummy books are the ones he shows to the governors so right. that they see that it's all great I'm like oh yeah yeah well he's managing the money perfectly i don't know what you're talking about um yes so they suspected this, but there was nothing they could really do. Then, in 1792, so a couple of years after the death, the daughter of a Quaker called William Tuke commented to her father that it was a shame that the Quakers couldn't have their own asylum where they could treat fellow Quakers with decency if they were suffering from a mental illness. William, he was a rich tea merchant and an influential member of the Quaker community, um, but most of all, it appears he was one of the rarest things in history, a genuinely nice person. He campaigned against the inhumane practices of the East India Company. He campaigned against the slave trade and supported the creation of a safe haven for former slaves in Sierra Leone. Uh, He also founded three schools in his lifetime to help lift children out of poverty. And William decided that his daughter's idea of a Quaker-run asylum was great. And he set about gathering support in the local community. He even went so far as to visit St Luke's Asylum in London, which at this point was considered the most progressive public asylum in the country, but was horrified to see a woman chained naked to a wall. And this was an elderly woman. Uh, with an amazing amount St Luke's? <clears throat> yeah. With an amazing amount of restraint, William reflected that the staff seemed to want to help their patients at St Luke's, but they had very limited and archaic means with which to do so. So when his own asylum, called The Retreat, opened in 1796, it had been designed to promote a new means of treating patients that became known as the moral treatment. I'm thinking like hot tub therapy and... How hot? (laughs) Now, there's no hot tubs. All right. Uh, 
There were still door locks. They don't have electric. (laughs) They've got hot tubs. (laughs) (laughs) There were still door locks and there were still bars on the windows, but the bars on the windows had been designed to look like window frames. Every patient there got a bedroom to themselves. They got clean clothes, which wasn't always a thing, because the sort of the the prevailing idea of mental illness was that it was people reverting to an animalistic state and the doctors at Bedlam and other um, mad doctors would say, well, as these people are acting like animals, they will have the um, the understanding of animals and thus they won't feel the cold and they don't need clothes. <laughs> so the idea that these so people... So I can take my money for myself. Yeah, I don't need to pay for <laughs> new clothes. But at the retreat, you got... Um, clean clothes and you got good food because that was another way that they tried to skimp in other asylums just porridge for every meal yeah. well the retreat you got full the veg you've been given veg you've been given proper family meals because they tried to make it operate like a family with the patients encouraged to take part in meaningful activities and to do tasks to help around the retreats so they'd do cooking they'd do cleaning they'd do gardening uh, they'd be treated with respect by the staff and they'd be encouraged rather than restrained. Basically, all of this was... Uh, what was the doctor called <clears throat> that, that run that re- the retreat? I don't know that I've got his name. It was mainly just the... Doctor Hunter. <laughs> William. No, that William Tuke was the, the financer of it, pretty much, and the sort of the, the driving force. Um, Dr. Kindly. Oh, yeah, so... He sounds great. Yeah. They basically... It was a proto sort of form of occupational therapy they introduced and there were simple things like even though you still couldn't leave the grounds the corridors were designed to be nice and long so that you could go for walks and so that you could you know everything was spaced out so that it'd be nice and quiet and that it was calming and like i say fear and intimidation have been completely replaced with encouragement and a supportive environment and people trying to bring you back into society that way the approach relied on the idea that people with mental illnesses were still rational, um, which hadn't been what people thought before then. Um, and instead of just becoming irrational and unable to, to sort of you know, engage in any kind of meaningful discourse about their conditions, that what was happening was they were building their reality upon faulty principles. So like with a delusion, you believe something to be the case that isn't the, the case. And although your actions seen by someone who is doesn't have that delusion seem random uh, and crazy, if you accept that that's their reality, that they believe that delusion, they're still, they're still making that yeah they're delusion. making yeah. rational leaps from that original error yeah that leads to the behaviour. So you know you you can help them to go back to find where that um, issue is, where that faulty belief is, and then uh, with encouragement and support get them to to agree that 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 is an erroneous belief um although initially scoffed at the methods at the retreat began to show real benefits for the patients and doctors the world over came to study the techniques used it took off quite a bit in france it took off quite a bit in america and a similar retreats style um asylum started to be built by other well-meaning um sort of philanthropists after 15 years William's grandson decided to write a book on the methods used at the retreat so that the ideas could be implemented even further and wider uh, in the treatment of mental illness because up until this point it had been visiting doctors and they'd show them. So if you write a book and say, this is what we do, this is how you can do it, you know, 
all you need to do is get a copy of the book. You don't need to come and actually visit it yourself and you can start to implement some of those ideas. This book, Description of the Retreat, was published in 1813. It was not universally well received, though. Oh, oh my God. It's a double twist. <laughs> well, there was a new physician at York Asylum, Dr. Charles Best. And he took Ooh, best. That's best. Best. It best. Best. Well, I knew it was another B. <clears throat> yeah. He Wait, took exception to the... Bridges. You know, it's Quakers. Oh. He took exception to the implied criticism of his own institution, because obviously the retreat and the asylum were in both in York and quite close to each other. I think there was only a couple of miles between the two buildings. Oh. So when, when... Could you see the retreat from... I don't think you could see them from from the two, but they were very close. (laughs) The barred windows. And as far as Dr. Charles Best was concerned, they were in direct competition. Um, And when I say implied criticism, basically, because Simon was writing things like, we do not restrain our patients, we encourage them to go for daily walks within the grounds. Charles Best, who did restrain his patients, just took that as fighting words. Right. Uh, he'd been handpicked as a successor by Dr. Hunter, so you know he's a bit of a bastard. And he continued to embezzle money, treat patients with purges bleeding, naked restraint was used in filthy conditions, just like he'd learnt from his mentor, who probably learnt it from the Monroes of Bedlam. Um, was it only Quakers that were going to the retreat? Initially, yes, but then it started to expand to, to everyone because the people of Yorkshire realised that there was this amazing place. To put you... Were people were going in with mental health conditions and were coming back out with those mental health conditions in remission, or you could put them in York Asylum where you might not hear from them again, right? And then you'd find out they died of death. Hannah Mills to forty-two days. No, she was age forty-two. She lasted oh. forty-five days. But very good. Very good memory. Also, by the time this book came out, uh, York Asylum had close to two hundred patients. Um, Wait, even though... Right, so the... It was built for 54. Right. So by the time Dr. Best took over, it was close to 200. So they're running at 400% capacity. Yeah. And as you can imagine, that that kind of affected quality because at that time, deaths were so common that the staff now routinely covered up the death of any they person. They just called them whoopsies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the, the, the first thing they'd check if someone died is... Are they going to be missed? And if they thought there was a chance they wouldn't be, uh, they would not report the death and would cover it up to try and get those stats down because they didn't want to keep reporting high death uh, rates. So, yeah, it's like, oh, whoopsie, sweepy under rug. (laughs) Literally into the hole. Yeah. (laughs) They had the most amazing compost heap. (laughs) (laughs) But despite any criticism of York Asylum being fully justified... Dr. Best decided he needed to respond and he wrote an anonymous letter to the York Chronicle newspaper uh, criticising the Dukes and their wishy-washy leftist methods. So rather than directly challenging um, and, you know, giving reasons why he was wrong, he just wrote a kind of angry letter under a pseudonym to the local paper. (laughs) when, but, did, when was it found out that it was him? That, uh, that, immediately, that, oh, right. pretty much, just by reading it. It's like, there's only one person who's going to be saying this, and it's Dr. Best. So it quickly turned into a very public argument that took place, basically in the letter columns of the newspaper. So the two of them writing at <laughs> each other, um, with the public just reading it. 
and the people of York reading this began to realise that although York Asylum had been there for, you know, 40 years, 40, 45 years at this point, none of them really knew what happened in it. You know, you could pick up this book, anyone could buy the book about the retreat and they could read exactly what happened, the routines through the day, everything that you would want to know about what they did, why they did it, where the evidence base was. But with York Asylum, it was people go in the front, sometimes they come out the back. <laughs> Took 45 years yeah. to start questioning that. Yeah. Uh, and Dr. Best, he he sort of realised people were asking awkward questions the, and decided... The families and stuff, yeah. it's like your again, son's gone in and it's like, oh, where's your son? I haven't seen him in a while. Oh, he's, he's, been, been, he's been in hospital for 10 years. Yeah, but it's the power of the doctor and the profession. You you could say, well, he can't see anyone. And people okay. were still very subservient to that kind of um, right. authority. But yeah. They probably have had about 12 kids or something <laughs> yeah. to be like, yeah, you oh, had yeah. spares. You're like, one oh, I forgot about had. Tom. I'm sure they're all <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, as people started to suddenly think asking those questions might be a good thing, Dr. Best tried to back away from the entire thing, tried to go, oh, well, it d- doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah. You don't want to know how the sausage is made. <laughs> Leave me alone. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, well, probably because of the free, you know, the big scandal that was brewing, um, a former patient called William Vickers, he was contacted by the, pa- by the paper to talk about what had happened. And he was more than happy to give very... He was more than happy to give details of some of the abuses he'd suffered. Oh, God. This led to others coming forward to tell stories, including a reverend who was thrown down some stairs by a keeper. As thrown part down of his, some stairs? As part of his treatment. This was a man of God. So <laughs> I'm imagining, and this may be completely wrong, but I'm imagining a frail man in his 70s with sort of just a, a little crown of graying hair. And I'm still imagining him in his sort of full vestments, just being thrown <laughs> bodily down a set of stone steps. Uh, and an oh. elderly woman called Martha Kidd who suffered a dislocated hip as a result of her treatment. Because, you know, you're giving someone a bed bath and you rub with the loofah too vigorously. Oh. And the, the hip just... slip. Doesn't it? I yeah. mean, my hips go in and out. I'm like, I'm a bit like a Ken doll, you know, you can just pop them out and pop them back in. I'd say we're more of an action man. Oh, thank so you. In, we need more. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like this is substantial evidence so far. This oh, God. Is, this is hearsay. Well... Were there any determined scars? to get more evidence mm. uh, and to finally make sure there's a proper investigation of the practices at York Asylum, Samuel Tuke, because now, you know, Dr. Best has come after him. He, he just wrote a book about what they were doing. They had been fine to this point to say, well, we can't affect what's going on there. All we can do is try and do a better version and hope people come around. They'd done it in a very passive manner just by starting their own asylum. They hadn't attacked York Asylum. They'd just done their own thing. But he decided now, no, he'd had enough. You know, Dr. Best needed taking down a peg or two. So he and a number of his reformist friends paid £20 to become governors of York Asylum because the only thing you had to do to become a governor of an asylum, and this was the same thing that happened with Bedlam, was to pay a fee and then you were a governor. So and, I mean, a, a, a stakeholder in a business, or a, yeah, uh, sorry, like a buying stock. Pretty much, they yeah. did the equivalent of buying stock in the York Asylum, because then it would allow them to inspect all of the records. The governors. Um, so this is a completely parallel story to Bedlam. 
There's so many similarities. There are a lot of similarities, yeah. Yeah. But hopefully the conclusion's different. Um, No, so... In a good way? (laughs) Up to (laughs) to that point, the way that Best had got around the governors and the way that Hunter had before him was this. So they, the governors, first of all... He goes, what's that over there? And they all turn around the door closing. (laughs) Well, pretty much what happened was the the governors, they, they approached people to become governors. People who wanted... Um, the veneer of respectability and philanthropy so they go well if you give us 20 pounds we'll we'll make you a governor of the york asylum you can put that on your letterhead that this is a position you hold and all you have to do is turn up to one meeting a year and, and they found a group, happy. yeah a group yeah. of people to do that and then on that appointed day when all the governors were turning up they would make sure that the corridor that led from the front door to the governor's meeting room was really clean and they make sure that none of the patients could be viewed on that wall. And they're just walking through and there's that and smell of fresh paint. Yeah, they'd, they'd walk them through and it'd be, you know, trying to distract them. And ah, ha, ha, ha. They'd go into the governor's room. There'd be tea and biscuits. There'd be a roaring fire. They'd present them with the dummy set of records. And they'd maybe wheel in one patient that they'd specially clean for the occasion. And go, oh, Look. no, just be an actor or one yeah. of the orderlies. Yeah. Are, you, are you happy, <laughs> Ethel? Yes. Bye, Ethel. And that would be it. So it's completely performative. But, I feel great. <laughs> Thanks. But they, they'd never been able to stop the, you know, the, the stipulation that anyone could pay. It's just up until this point, no one had really wanted to. Mm. So Samuel called their bluff with a load of his mates and they all paid their 20 quid, got made governors and said, right, we're coming to inspect everything, all your records, all the books. So what do you do if you're Dr. Best? Change your name. <laughs> and just disappear. Well, No. He had a better plan because, shockingly, there was almost immediately a fire in December 1813 that started, of all places, in the records room. (gasps) Imagine destroying many presumably incriminating documents, as well as killing four patients. But you can't can't destroy an omelette without destroying a few (laughs) eggs, can you? So so they they burnt down the records room. And this, this did slow down the Quakers, but they were dogged. And they began collecting credible evidence of whippings, rapes, very dirty conditions, violent patients being housed with vulnerable patients because they didn't have one bedroom each. And if you had one florid person in the middle of a schizophrenic attack and a load of people who, you know, were catatonic, just chuck them all in together. I'm aware of things like this, but then when Joe tells you about them, you're like, oh. And of course, the starvation levels of food and the untreated physical illnesses. And when they did get food, it wasn't um, seasoned properly. Oh, oh yeah, they, they weren't paying for salt and pepper. You were getting that just... It was it was a boiled potato. Yeah. And that's it. It was water and potato was what you were eating. Uh, yeah, and the untreated physical illnesses, because of course, in those conditions, people were getting lots of other illnesses and the physician, he didn't really care enough to go and treat those. So people would go in because they were depressed, you know, and they would come out with pneumonia. some kind of chronic, <laughs> yeah, respiratory tract infection that would, you know, stay with them for the rest of their life. Uh, the final straw, though... Didn't it just bum you out? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> the final straw, though, came but, in March 1814. This is where it all gets good and happens. all a, a dream. When a local magistrate, a hero called Godfrey Higgins arrived at the asylum to complete a surprise inspection. It's a powerful name. Mm. Yeah. 
he was Gosh. shown he was shown around the wards by the keepers where it looked like thirsty thirsty Keithy <laughs> Probably Keith just stopped the podcast dead. Yeah. Loki, you can have a drink. No, don't encourage Loki to have a drink. All right. Can we? <laughs> can we? Yeah. So the final straw came in March 1814 when a local magistrate called Godfrey Higgins arrived at the asylum to complete a surprise inspection. He was shown around the wards by the keepers where it looked like some improvements had been made. So he's quietly optimistic that this, you know extra sort of spotlight they were shining was actually forcing them to finally up their game in terms of the the care they were providing then it's gonna be another fire no they came to a locked door which godfrey asked them to open oh and you know there's like wailing behind it no there was no sounds behind it but the keepers still they tried to convince him it was a pile of bodies (gasps) well they they were saying it was just a room attached to the kitchens and it was just basically a storeroom there wasn't much of anything in the and anyway, they couldn't find the key. You've got it. But it didn't matter. Godfrey, he could smell bullshit. And, and human well, remains. Yeah, he dis- he demanded they open the door and just basically said, look, either you open the door or I'm breaking it down. Uh, and reluctantly, the keepers, not wanting to pay for a new door out of their money, they, they found the key uh, and they unlocked it. And you're right, it turned out it wasn't bullshit that Godfrey had been smelling, but it was human shit. And the keepers are going, oh my, how, how does that happen? <laughs> in a number of tiny cells called the low grates built into the basement. Oh, so this was the chokey. He saw huddled oh. groups of naked and disheveled older women stood in piles of human feces ankle deep. Oh. It was clear they had been left there with very minimal support or care for a significant amount of time. And they're alive. What's the... Yeah. Well, I assume you say very minimal. Where's the support and care? They go in every day and chuck some bread into the poo for them to eat. The game was well and truly up, and Doctor Best quickly announced his retirement due to ill health. This meant he got to leave without having to answer for any of the crimes he had definitely committed. Because although he was a criminal, he was also a doctor, and as a result, was somehow beyond reproach. So he walks away it was the equivalent of you can't find me I quit <laughs> only it's you can't prosecute me I quit and he walked away um, did he free it? tell me they're going to, to the retreat well nearly because the other staff um, the apocryphy and the seven keepers they were dismissed and they were replaced by staff who'd been trained at the retreat within four years the conditions at York Asylum were reported to have dramatically improved and the asylum will continue following a name change to Bootham Park Hospital until 2015, when the Care Quality Commission declared it unfit for purpose and gave the staff five days to close it down. Ah. Uh, <laughs> so it... 2015? Yeah, 2015. It, it was given five days to close. After it. What, after what are asylums like now? Well, the, uh, there aren't asylums now. There are yeah. mental health units. What's that? So what the panorama like? ones? Um, the, those, the... those are private hospitals, the Winterbourne well, View. Yeah, Winter... yeah. And Ash was... Ash, there was Ashbourne another one, yeah. Like that as well. In no. contrast... Have you not seen that? No, is it bad? No. Oh, oh it's, it's very bad. It's just... Basically, unless yeah. you have people um, enforcing a really rigid code, um, you will be eventually infiltrated by people who are either cutting corners due to ignorance or cutting corners due to their own self-interest or 
trying to do things for themselves rather than for the patients and the standards will slip to the point where the new people coming in will just accept that that's how you do things because they don't know any better yeah. well that's basically it yeah. isn't it when you watch, if, if you watch it but mm. I wouldn't even say watch it because it's just heartbreaking mm. really in contrast the retreat closed its own doors to inpatients in 2018 but it continues to provide outpatient services to this day so the, restri- the, the retreat is still going ah. to this day um, Samuel Chuk himself is buried in the cemetery within the grounds of the retreat, as is another noted Quaker philanthropist, Joseph Roundtree, of sweet fame. Sweet fame. Yeah, you know Roundtree's. He owned that company. Fruit pastels. Yes. I only like both, the red ones. Mm, both men have blue <laughs> plaques in the city of York, and that, gentlemen, is the story of how the Quakers beat York Asylum a lot of Quaker stories are that Quakers are awesome yeah yeah. Yeah. I would never become a Quaker but I am very much a are, fan of the Quakers are the Quakers anymore yeah yeah they're still Quakers what are they like a Christian it's, sect yes it's yeah it's it's a form of Christianity I don't know the difference between them all but it's like a Methodist version of Christianity perhaps <laughs> Keith I think that's the end of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> We're being attacked. <laughs> Is that it, Jim? Uh, well, I, I think it has to be because the, the dogs have gone mental. Right. Goodbye. Good, goodbye. Wait a minute. Ah, well, yeah, because it's Kate and Jessica. Goodbye.